Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This is your host, DJ Louis XIV, and this is part four. Four, as Beyonce would say, that is her favorite number, and I guess that's our lucky number because it's the last episode in our Beyonce series that has been going on for a month. If you're not sick of listening to me talk about Beyonce, I hope that you can give me one more hour before you lose your patience. (laughs) So this episode obviously is going to be about Renaissance, but I'm going to get to that in one second. Before I do, I want to say some housekeeping things as usual, which is please come out to Gorgeous Gorgeous a week from tomorrow. It's Friday, August 12th at Resident in downtown Los Angeles. I'll be DJing all night. I'll be playing Renaissance songs all night. You know, as many as I can get in there, really. And tickets are cheap. The link is in the show notes of this episode, and I will post it on social media as well. So I hope to see you guys at Gorgeous Gorgeous, and come holler at me if you come. Also, please don't forget to rate, review Pop Pantheon wherever you listen to podcasts. Next week, I'll be getting back to reading some of my favorites. There have been some freaking doozies lately, so get ready for that. I'm sure everyone will get a good laugh out of some of these reviews. Follow us on social media, DJ XIV on both Twitter and Instagram and the podcast at Pop Pantheon Pod on Instagram in particular. And get in the Discord because I know I've been saying this every single week, but it has really gone on a rocket ship. I It has doubled in size or nearly doubled in size in the last couple of weeks. It is literally nonstop about Renaissance and other pop topics lately. Like it's just rolling, rolling, rolling. Every time I jump in there, I'm just so amused. And I'm so delighted at how thoughtful the conversations are. People are really like into dissecting this record, other pop things from so many different angles, so many smart people and such a wonderful community that's being built there. So come with your Renaissance opinions, come with your other topics you want to talk related to pop music and get in that discord. I will put the link in the show notes and I will also put them on our social media channels. And there's obviously a Beyonce essential Spotify playlist for anyone that needs that in the show notes of this episode and on social media. I will add Renaissance songs to it. I've got to like put some thought into like, what are the essential Renaissance songs? That's taking me a minute to figure out. I also want to say two other Beyonce related things before we get into this episode. One is that I have seen a lot of comments on social media and in my DMs from people that are upset with the fact that we have dedicated four episodes to Beyonce, but have only a single episode on, say, Lady Gaga, or as has come up a lot, Madonna. And I want to address that with people, which is to say that when I started this podcast, I had absolutely no clue what I was getting myself into. I had no idea how big of an audience it was going to end up getting. I had no idea that that audience would be the type of amazing people and pop thinkers that would want to listen to this much content on a single artist. That is now clear to me and to us and our thinking about how we program the content of the show. And the reason that those are only one episodes are because I just didn't know that we could effectively pull something of this scale off and that people would listen to it. And it was no knock to my girl, Stephanie Joanne Germanata, or to Madonna, who I know I've mentioned on numerous episodes, I will be making more in-depth episodes on the parts of her career that are not covered in the current Madonna episodes. So I just wanted to address that. That did come up in my social media situations a couple of times over the last couple of weeks, people being upset about that. So I just want to say 
that was just a function of the podcast growth and we have grown a lot and I hope that when a pop star's career merits it, that we really can take as deep a dive as these Beyonce episodes have been because I think they've really been rewarding for me and for the listeners. So I just want to make sure that people understand that. Two things, last things before we get into the episode today. One is I reviewed Renaissance in BuzzFeed and I'm proud of it. So I hope you'll check it out. It's a good breakdown of how this fits into Beyonce's oeuvre, I walk through where her career has been and why the fun that she's having on this record is so meaningful in the context of her work. And I will link to that in the show notes of this episode, and I will also link to it on social media. And finally, I want to get into this conversation between me and the New Yorker's Doreen Sanfelix, who is a brilliant writer and who, when I approached her for this, has written about Beyonce in the past, but wanted to make sure it was okay for her to have some dissenting views on Beyonce. And I said, Pop Pantheon is, of course, a welcoming place to all views on Beyonce. And we've had a lot of people on the show, and myself included, that, you know, I don't want to say stan her, but that are big fans. And Doreen is too. And I think a part of being a big fan is being able to talk critically about them. And she has a lot of fascinating points that really opened my mind, made me think again. She loves a lot of things about her. She has a lot of fascinating things that she would like to challenge her on. So I think you guys will really get a lot out of this conversation. So of course, we had only had a couple of days to process it. We're all still processing this very dense piece of work. So I'm sure opinions will morph and change over time. But this is like our gut check reactions to Renaissance. We had listened to it for a couple of days and just sort of sharing our first reaction. So without further ado, here is my conversation about Renaissance with Doreen. Okay, so I am here with the brilliant Doreen San Felix. Is that right? Good job. Thank you so much. <laughs> I worked really hard on it. Okay. <laughs> of The New Yorker. And I just want to first start by saying welcome to the podcast. I am such a huge fan of your work. I am so happy to be here. This has been in addition to listening to this album, the highlight of my weekend. Oh my God, I'm so <laughs> glad to hear it. Yeah. So as you might know, Doreen, we have been unfurling a epic series on this show about Queen Bee herself. I've been following along. Three episodes, three guests, <laughs> so much Beyonce content. <laughs> I am definitely going to need to go to the House of Darion Rehab Center for Beyonce <laughs> after this is all over. We have dived deep on every single Beyonce era from Destiny's Child through Lemonade, Homecoming, Black is King, Everything is Love. And we finally have arrived here at Beyonce's seventh studio album, Renaissance. It came out on Friday. I will show my cards right up top and say that I am absolutely enraptured with this record and think it's pretty much incredible on every level. And I am so excited to have your thoughts on this, both because you've written beautifully about Beyonce in the past among so many other incredible topics, but also when I initially reached out to you, you said, I'd like to do the show, but I want to ask you before I commit, <laughs> are you okay with dissenting Beyonce opinions? Because your mood on her had shifted in recent times, is what you told me. So I have to ask as my first question, can you share a little bit about the journey? Like where you were with Beyonce and where you are now with Beyonce and how you've sort of evolved in your thinking about her? Absolutely. So I always think of Beyonce as being the shadow figure of my own sister. My sister is the same age as Beyonce. 
And、mm. growing up, I'm from Brooklyn. Like I'm from Canarsie. I'm from Jay Z territory, right? So when right. Beyonce was insinuated <laughs> into this man's life, it was like a huge deal. I would say、right. in the late '90s, early 2000s. And part of my love for Beyonce as a girl was very much rooted in my sister's disdain for her. <laughs> oh, and I think a lot of that. Came from being someone who was exactly her age and just couldn't relate to that perfectionism, to the sense of distance. I think that is integral to our understanding of early Beyonce. The you know the Southern pageant queen, Brooklyn girls, and necessarily weren't able to、right. vibe with that. And as I've gotten older, I've developed a lot more empathy for my sister's perspective, and I think it's only deepened my. Abiding interest in Beyonce, which is to say that perfectionism is something that can alienate her from a lot of people,、mm. and so I would say that my sense of dissent is not even necessarily that I think the music isn't as good or that I'm exhausted by the media strategies, although they can be a lot, <laughs> but more so that. And just seeing her through the filter of adulation, we miss so much about what makes Beyonce singular. We miss so much about what makes her, in many ways, completely unknowable. And I think that、mm. that is—it's just a flavor of pop star that really hasn't existed prior to her. And there are obviously, like, I'm using scare quotes here. There are positive attributes to that, but there are also negative attributes. And I was so. Intrigued by the sort of Easter eggs that she makes towards her own perfectionism in this album, and how that has、mm. constricted her in the past, I was just feeling a little nervous. Where it was like, "Gosh, is there going to be like another sort of album cycle where we are not allowed to think of Beyonce ironically as a human? Where we do put her in that superwoman structure that she so insists on, but for some reason we decide to not question why she is so attached to that narrative." And I was also just. Nervous that the hive was going to come after me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm curious what you make of. In that framing, the sort of notional idea that has defined at least the cultural narrative surrounding the last ten years of her work, which is that she has, beginning with the visual album, quote unquote, abandoned the pursuit of perfectionism. I mean, I put that again in gigantic quotation marks. I mean, that、right. was essentially the thesis statement of Beyonce the visual album.、Right. She talked about it in such terms, and rightfully, it was viewed as a more revealing. Work on some level, although obviously still filtered through the most ambitious <laughs> pursuit of artistic perfectionism right, ever. Right. And then, of course, Lemonade, in which I think she was pretty revelatory and exposing of certain aspects of her intimate life on record. So, do you see that as? Actual exposure or actual dropping of perfectionism, or do you mostly just see these as utilizing the ideas of exposure and gestures towards lack of perfectionism that are still couched in utter perfectionism? It's both. The level of I don't want to use the word artifice because I do believe that Beyonce, to her bone, is a deeply, deeply genuine, hungry artist, but. She creates narratives, right? And so her、yes. truth does always have to kind of conform to those grooves. Right. <laughs>、um, the thing about her truth, though, is that it is so alluring. It's so interesting.、Mm. We tend to forget that Beyonce is a child star, and so、yes. obviously, growing up in that childhood that is not a childhood, I think I almost think of this past ten years of her career as being kind of like a secondary puberty. 
both yes. as a woman. Absolutely. I've been thinking that a lot right. listening to this record. I was like, she's never sounded more youthful than she does here. Totally. And initially I kind of balked at some of the lyrics because I was like, girl, you I know you were not in the club because, <laughs> <laughs> because you were dominating pop music yes. for, you know, so long. But then I realized it was kind of like... There was like a melancholy mm. I felt in her hunger, even her avarice to make the club that she could never oh. really access on Renaissance. The thing about Beyonce is that she is not comfortable doing interviews. We can tell she's not comfortable speaking extemporaneously. And so the closest that we get to spontaneity, right, is her having this narrative and becoming a lot more experimental, a lot ruder and exciting in her lyrics, but still her truths are always so deeply filtered. Mm. even. So Renaissance has, I think, a willingness to be messy in a way that none of her other albums have. It still ultimately is like an extremely mediated piece of work and art and personal testament. You're getting at, I think, one of the most fascinating aspects of Beyonce's artistry to me, which is that that mediation through perfectionism or whatever the word is that we want to use for it <laughs> is also part of the thrill. Like, you know, and that's the hard part about it sometimes for me is that like, I think this record does a nice job or as nice a job as Beyonce might be able ever to do, or at least at this phase of like cutting the perfectionism with a looseness. There's true improvisational feels to some of these lyrics and the way that she's singing them in a way that I haven't felt before. And also... I think very importantly, a real focus on bacchanalia and fun. I kept thinking to myself, like, it's not that like listening to Beyonce records in the past hasn't been fun. I mean, she has a lot of art that is fun to consume, but she's never been particularly defined by the idea of fun. Right. Like, I even think about a song like Get Me Bodied, which is like technically about going out and having a fun time in the club, but is like filtered through this kind of like martial militaristic, like, like regiment, you know what I mean? It's like mission one, mission two, mission three. Like, here's how we go out to the club. Like, right. it's not exactly like this sort of breezy like take on it, I, you know? So. I fully agree. And I think obviously it's not her fault per se, but I think the deep, intense work that her fandom does really takes away from understanding what that segment of the population would call her flaws. They're not flaws. They're just like elements right. of her personality. And I mm -hmm. think like her inability to relax and to have fun is right. so fascinating. And yes. Renaissance to me is a battle with mm. the Beyonce that has existed for 40 years and a confrontation more so than Lemonade in a lot of ways to me. Fascinating. All right, so let's get into it. Where are you seeing that confrontational quality on Renaissance? I've been feeling lyrically Church Girl is a lot more interesting mm -hmm. than it is sonically per se. The production mm -hmm. on that, I mean, the production is always incredible. That's a given. She has marshaled a small nation state of <laughs> collaborators 
to make something that truly sounds like a just wall of sound. I mean, every minute is dense and thick and really dazzling, amazing. I think, production-wise. Okay, but you were saying Church Girls. Yeah, I brought up Church Girl because there's something about that song that's like really corny and really earnest. Yes. <laughs> Obviously, Beyonce has been singing about her sexuality for decades and right. has not been given the due that she deserves for being sexually free, partially because her sexuality is very much framed within the marriage heterosexual structure. Right. Church Girl, to me, almost feels like presentation of like her warring self. It's like mm. there's the Beyonce of today who's kind of like talking to the church girl in her and in a lot of us, a lot of black women who were raised a certain way in America, particularly in the South, and telling this person that like she can get free, that this like contradiction is not a prison. If anything, it's a way of being. That's one song I listened to and I was like, I don't really like this song, but it is completely necessary for this artist to have it on the album. <laughs> you know? so I, I love the song, but I totally get what you're saying about it. I love the idea of it almost being like a pep talk from present to past self or something like that. Because right. I've been thinking so much about this record in the context of like Nasty Girls, the song from Survivor in which Beyonce Hello. You know, is admonishing women for dressing too scantily. <laughs> She did present very conservative values in the past. And I think that it's interesting, too, what you talk about in terms of her not getting her due for sort of her explorations of her sexuality or presentations of her sexuality in mm -hmm. the past, because I have always found that difficult to parse myself because... And look, I'm a big fan of Beyonce's and I like all these records, so let me just couch that first. But like Naughty Girl, Baby Boy, these songs where she was ostensibly presenting a version of like sexual liberation always struck me as mannered, de rigueur, right. Janet Jackson style. I've studied the greats and this is what a solo pop star does. Like, right. I'm not saying it wasn't authentic to her. Of course, what do I know about Beyonce's personal life? But in terms of just how it registers for me, looking back on it, as much as I love those songs, it strikes me as a extraordinary studied visionary artist who as you said has very tight control on how she wants to be presented and seen presenting a version of pop star sexuality that has been presented lots of times before yes. and is kind of like you gotta do it if you're gonna be one of these women so right. the sexuality that registers here to me feels like an entirely other thing like this feels like actual true explorations of her singular perspective on Absolutely. sexuality in a way that I have rarely seen from her before. Yes, it feels authentic to the way that her life unfurled, which was that exactly. she met her husband when she was a teenager and he was 30. Yes. We don't like to discuss Indeed. this, but this is what happened. And therefore... <laughs> Much of her sexual exploration has been with this person. And it's yes. been in a mostly monogamous context. Um, 
<laughs> I don't know if it's because I'm 30 now. I'm finally 30 and I'm like a real woman. And I've been thinking there is a through line, I think, from the sexual betrayal that is described in Lemonade to the unruly sexual vision that she presents on this album. Maybe you can understand what I'm trying to get at, but it's like you kind of have to be fucked over to really fuck, you know? Oh, <laughs> okay. That's a genius point. <laughs> Say more about that. Yeah, there's a sense of sexuality, obviously. It's useful to think of it as a liberatory mechanism in society, but mm-hmm. also for people. But it also like brings you like a lot of pain next to that pleasure. And I think about her invocation of drugs. And it's like, that's a lot more of a complex reference for what's going on in the way that she's thinking of her sexuality than just like, oh, I can be sexy. Like I can yeah. attract the male gaze. It's like right. the gazes that she's attracting on this album are it's not just Jay-Z here. The idea of the infidelity informing some of the sexuality on here is so provocative and you're making me think of a lyric on Virgo's Groove where she says, kiss me mm-hmm. where you bruise me. So use me, use me, pursue me, kiss me where you bruise me. There are certain moments in here where I have thought about that. Like, how has their relationship dynamic shifted as represented on this record? Because as I've been laying out on this series, I think there's one way in which to look at Beyonce's entire oeuvre as a long-form exploration of a monogamous relationship. Mm, And specifically the monogamous relationship of a billionaire black woman who's been famous since she was a teenager. But how often... Have we had a pop star that has been in one continuous relationship through their entire discography and who is devoted on every record to exploring that? That is her currency. Almost all of her songs are about exploring love and betrayal and lust in the confines of this relationship. So... I'm fascinated by what you're saying. And I thought about that a lot too, listening to this record of like Lemonade fundamentally shifted the perceptions of both Beyonce and Jay-Z and their marriage in the public eye. Like it was the final nail in the coffin of Jay-Z's pre-Beyonce persona of this like impenetrable, never lost his cool. Businessman. The man, the man, the gangster, the head mafioso, Mm -hmm. you know, all of the things that Jay-Z was. Once Lemonade happened, that was kind of over for him. And also I think it was kind of the culmination of her entering the true pop cultural power position in the relationship. As the joke goes at this point, Jay-Z is to many people Beyonce's husband you know like that is that is who jay-z is yeah if you're 16 years old you're you're 30 i'm 35 like when i was a kid jay-z was the fucking man i mean jay-z was everything to like my generation growing up so it, it is funny to think about him in this new role so i'm also fascinated by what you're saying about this unleashing sort of like a new era of freakdom in their sexuality together and the right. way she talks about it because it is true like one of the things i love about this album is that i think it 
is the most clear window yet into the strangeness of Beyonce's mind and sexuality. <laughs> like, she is a fucking weirdo. Absolutely. And, like, we've had glimpses into this in the past, but it's most evidently on display here than on any record that she's put out so far. Sexy, my love. Don't miss this I've been pondering the lyric, you Mr. Nasty, I'll clean it up since the first time I heard this song, Cuff It. <laughs> I totally agree. Alien Superstar to me. I wish that was the single. I understand why it wasn't. There yeah. is a level of listening difficulty on this album that we don't tend to attribute to Beyonce, I think. And I think right. Alien Superstar doesn't necessarily hit you in the way that Break My Soul immediately is hitting you in the head with like its references. Well, it's and, way less conventional. Right. You know? Yeah. You yeah. know, Break My Soul is anthemic to the point of absurdity. <laughs> <laughs> Go um, off, Doreen. I'm seeing this with love <laughs> and frustration. Like, that's how I like to engage with artists. Yes, I, I agree. Always from a place of curiosity. But that's all to yes. say that Alien Superstar was such a... When I first saw that title, I was like, Beyonce? Alien Superstar? Like, you are convention. Unique. That's what you are. Stilettos kicking off the bar category bad bitch i'm the bar alien superstar whip whip i do have a resistance to her coming out as a freak because right. the machine is it's impenetrable in many ways it's hard for us to feel what is endemic to freakness which is like naturalness rawness like we don't mm -hmm. get to see her in the world in a way that would make it believable to me. But then when I got right. to that song, it was more just like the liberation you feel in her as an artist, like her willingness to yes. sound like a little twisted, like a little ugly even mm. was really, really intriguing to me. And like, yes, I have to meet Beyonce where she's at. <laughs> yes, you did. You indeed. Yes. I mean, I'm thinking about her kind of growling on thick right dick all over that yacht now that's a very weird but exciting and fun titillating thing to say that is so beyonce i mean who else is fucking somebody on a yacht you know it's like <laughs> these are the flourishes that make this record yeah. thrilling to me And take you back to the casa. Bet I got you rock now. That dick all over the yacht now. You're totally on to something about the fact that, like, ultimately everything is filtered through the perfectionism. And, like, we may never be able to escape that with her. But I also think that's, like, kind of part of the thrill of this album is that it does an interesting job at melding her penchant for perfect execution. Mm -hmm. You can tell that like there was a vision for this thing and like she has realized that vision. Absolutely. Like it is that so... Pinterest was deep. Okay. Yes, <laughs> Pinterest was deep. Like, and that's incredible. I mean, the scale at which she pulls these things off, I mean, I felt this way about Lemonade too. It's like putting aside whether you think the music is good or whatever it is, like there's a marvel at just like the scale of the ambition yes. and the ability to pull the ambition off. Like right. it's, there's nobody doing it at, like her. I mean, there just isn't anybody that does that. 
that as well as her. But I think that this record, more than any album that Beyonce has done before, and that include the self-titled album, which was, again, supposed to be sort of a revelation of some right. sort. And I love that album. But this album feels like it really cuts that with a sense of, at least on her terms, in as much of a way that she can present it, a real free-flowing expression and as much of a lack of fear as I've ever seen in her about just being like, whatever, dude. Like, I'm going to show you these kind of bizarre parts of Right, and that's even in the construction of the album, the songs that are missing. Thinking about Beyonce, because she is such a student of her own self and also of music history in general, every album, it's like conforming to the golden ratio of how songs are supposed to be. There's the ballad, there's the this, you know, whatever. And like, there's no ballad on this album. No, the sequencing in and of itself is ingenious. It is so well put together. You know, I was so struck on our last episode, we had Dr. Daphne Brooks from Yale. And she was just a legend. I mean, like of the literal panoply of gems she dropped on this. Mm -hmm. She talked about Beyonce embracing the long form album as her currency, as an act of radicalism in terms of the way that black women have been shut out of that art form or have not been taken seriously in that format throughout music history. And I couldn't stop thinking about that through this record. I was like, she has gotten so good at making albums. As you said, this one dumps a lot of, as you were saying, sort of like the hallmarks of the good album. Lemonade was such a great example of what you're talking about. Yes. Like, you know, you start in one place, you build up an energy, you release through Love Drowned Sandcastles, mm-hmm. you punctuate with bangers at the end mm-hmm. and whatever. So this one moves through so many dynamic styles. I think that's how it manages it, is that it is a dance record, right? Like, And there was so much ballyhooing unnecessarily about this being some sort of 90s house or disco infused album when in reality it explores so many different dance styles i think it's that dynamism that allows it to be all up tempo the music both makes sense as a piece as like a composition as a comprised thing and yet you always feel like you're getting something slightly different or new with each song and i think that's part of why it's effective i mean that's how i experienced it anyway i think so i had a similar reaction when i first listened to the album all the way through I had the whole like, oh, fine. Like, it's almost like making for the digital era, whatever we're calling this time of music (laughs) release, doing the like A side, B side of like a physical record, you know? Yes, yes. It has that split in it. And I was really interested in that. But then I started to think about it as having like a slightly different shape. You see it in the transitions. Mm -hmm. And no clearer so than from Energy into Break My Soul, a song that I personally didn't really like love when it came out as a single, but in the sequence of this record works so incredibly well, especially as it comes off of the transition of this song, Energy, which like moves from a skeletal disco breakdown of the previous song, Cuff It, and moves into then sort of like an Afrobeat song that incorporates elements of Big Frida's parts of Break My Soul as a way of almost like introducing Break My Soul before Break My Soul then just like drops. And it is truly a dynamo moment on the album. Which I also think could be an interesting jumping off point for us to talk about the different sort of styles of dance music here, not so much a 90s house album outside of this song, and a few others. It's interesting to see people really glom onto the house, the disco, but what I'm like mm-hmm. most intrigued by is her flirtation and interest in Afrobeats. That's I, right. So, heard this record for the first time 
in the car. My friend Lindsay Weber, I think maybe as a mutual of ours. Ugh. Love Lindsay. The legend herself, of course. And we played it in the car. After we got through those first three songs, I'm that girl, Cozy, mm -hmm. and Alien Superstar. I said to Lindsay, like, I'm fascinated by the fact that Black is King and the gift were yeah. not some sort of Dalian's costume that she put on, but were actually kind of mostly the sonic jumping off point for like half the songs on this record. Absolutely. Because you just remember like Beyonce being like 24 years old and like discovering Fela Kuti and... End of time Beyonce. Exactly. And to mm -hmm. see it not only like sophisticate, sorry, that's a snobby word, but that's the word <laughs> I'm going to use, but also Beyonce pays homage, but she also asserts dominion. And I mm. think like in an era where like there's so much necrotized zombie Afro beats out, that's what I find most intriguing about the soundscape of this album. She's doing honor per se in some ways, but she also is making it hers. And I think that that's, you know, even like critically a little dangerous. A question I want to ask you, which like involves both the controversy with Khalees over the weekend. Right. So, you know, another important element of this, I think to your point, the Afrobeat again, also struck me a lot. Also, it's a very queer ballroom oriented right. record. Right. She's dedicated it to her uncle Johnny, who died from AIDS in the 1990s. She's literally assuming the role of ballroom MC on Heated. On Alien Superstar, as you said, category yes. is sexy bitch. Category, sexy bitch. I'm the bar, alien superstar. And she also does something that touched me really deeply, which is that for the first time, I think ever on record for someone who is one of the greatest gay icons of all time, she says all the pretty boys to the floor on Pure Honey. Technique, uh, all the pretty boys to the floor. And I think maybe is the first time she's ever directly called out the queer men of whom like her fan base is like largely comprised of, or at least <laughs> a big piece of it is comprised of. Right. So that's a really touching aspect of it to me. I'm curious what you think. So just to lay out for the audience, what happened with Khalees, there is a almost indiscernible sample of Milkshake in Energy, the fourth song on the record. And basically, Milkshake, in terms of how it's credited, was written by the Neptunes, Pharrell and right. Chad Hugo. There's been a long history of contention between Khalees and the Neptunes, to whom Khalees was signed during the bulk of her early period of her career, and who were her primary collaborators, that essentially they gypped her out of credits, royalties, the money and credit she was due on a lot of her innovative music mm -hmm. from that period. She is credited on energy, I think, in the notes, but she's not receiving royalties from the song because she doesn't have publishing on right, Milkshake. Right. So she got very upset this weekend at Beyonce for not at least reaching out to her and saying like, hey, I'm going to use a sample of Milkshake on the song, which technically Beyonce was not obliged to do in order to clear the sample because the only credited artists on the publishing side of that are Pharrell and Chad of the Neptune. So it was not a legal issue so much as just like a respect issue from Cleese's standpoint. 
And then the other part of it being that I've seen arguments online saying, okay, what the fuck is Beyonce doing positioning herself as a doyenne of queer and ballroom house music and art forms here and now all mainstream culture is going to associate her on tracks like Pure Honey, on tracks like Summer Renaissance and all of these kind of ballroom indebted songs as like, okay, now Beyonce is the centerpiece of queer ballroom culture, question mark, that's fucked up. So what do you make of both of those things or them together as an item in terms of Beyonce's, I don't want to use the word appropriation because it feels reductive, but you get what I'm saying. I do. I really do understand. I was really grateful for how messy this album rollout was. And I think- You'll take any mess you can get from it. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And I wonder if she might have felt sort of grateful for it too in some ways, because I think Mm. it brought- her down to a level of humanity that we haven't seen in basically a decade, I would say. Right. Having her album leak. Having her album. Oh my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) I was like imagining the conference calls at Parkwood, like the emergency, like hitting the button. There is a body somewhere. Having her album leak. And I think Khalees, whatever people want to say about whatever feelings Khalees might have about Beyonce that are informing why she made that video. Khalees has been done so dirty by the recording industry. And this is what music is about. Music is about mm-hmm. hearing artists talk about how ugly this industry is. And so at the end mm-hmm. of the day, it's like Khalees is part of Beyonce's story. The fact that Khalees mm-hmm. does not have the agency that she has is integral to how Beyonce, you know, Survivor, one of her biggest anthems before she was even solo was about how much she was controlled by the industry. The fact that Beyonce is not accessible as a person is because of the ugliness of the music industry. And so I see Khalees' frustration as really being like, if you want to talk about it ethically, it's about the Neptunes. It's about what they did to her. But Yes, and she said as much. Exactly. You know, she tempered her reaction by saying that. But I also think that It is important to confront the fact that Beyonce's power, because of its largesse, is always going to have these like unintended effects, sometimes intended effects on other musicians, on other artists, and on other cultures. And I have seen the beginnings of tension. It's a long story of like, is the diva, you know, the cisgendered female diva, is she an exploiter or is she the muse? This is something that is like endemic to queer culture, to ballroom culture and stuff. What I mean to say is that I think these conversations are like really exciting. And I wonder if... Beyonce is interested in making herself vulnerable in that way. Because if she has studied this history as well as she obviously had, like these samples are deep, cunty, like all this stuff. 100%. Then she knows what she's getting herself into. Right. And I think that there is something kind of like dark and strange about this billionaire woman imagining herself being in that ballroom on 125th street with the girls mm. you know she can mm. never be there that is so interesting i love this Thank point you. that's a whole framing of the whole record and you brought that up earlier it's such an astute one it's like the fantasies of someone that lives at such a remove right and that's why life. it's a pandemic album because mm. for someone who is such a control freak and i mean that now that we're thinking that beyonce is a freak so i mean that like the double con- yeah. entendre <laughs> I think the pandemic must have been such a, it was hard for everyone, but like, it's one of those albums that it's sense of going deep into a fantasy, deep into the imagination. It really, in my mind, scans with the sort of like conceptual albums that you hear from artists during times of like extreme political turmoil. There's some resignation on Beyonce's part that the political activist that 
she and Jay were trying on in the mid 2010s. We're not buying that anymore, you know? Uh, <laughs> and we can't. Is it just because we see through that or because we're sick of that and we don't have the capacity to engage with that at this moment? Like we're burnt out. I think a bit of both. And I think that they also must be burnt out on realizing that there is now a firmament in between them and culture and society. And like they can right. never really like touch us anymore. So she pays her homage the way that Big Frida has become kind of like her like her accoutrement yes exactly (laughs) (laughs) it's like make sure my good sis gets paid i like this but she doesn't seem to be one bit upset no exactly (laughs) and that's that's what's like real about the culture it's like the girls who are getting paid are not going to be mad about it nor should they be and i'm not interested in policing beyonce for appropriating a culture that isn't hers it's not as simple as that and i think on top of it the idea that it isn't hers is dynamic too because as i mentioned earlier beyonce is a fucking queer icon yes by dint of whether she wants to be or not i mean i spend most of my life djing in queer spaces that's like what my job is who is one of the most ever-present forces in those spaces Beyonce. And that has been true for my entire career. I think for her entire career, it's complicated. The idea that Beyonce should not be granted some sort of access or ability to engage with these tropes doesn't feel so clear cut to me. It's not as if Carrie Underwood is making a ballroom <laughs> album, right. is my point. You know right. what I mean? Like it's, it's, You're talking about someone that is part and parcel with queer culture. And so I receive this, and again, I'm not necessarily the main person. I'm not some sort of proprietor of ballroom and voguing by any means. Not but not. the way I receive it, at least as a queer man, is that I'm happy to see her getting directly at us, like talking to us, saying like, I see you, I love you, I'm part of you, we are together in this world. Because I think that that's reality. Like Beyonce is part of queer culture. She always has been. Divas, and we can get into the complicated nature of this, are, pop divas are, a fundamental aspect of queer culture. What was a huge aspect of voguing culture and ballroom culture? It was dressing up and drag sometimes as queer icons, as female queer icons. This was like a giant aspect of this culture. So like, it is a little bit complicated to say that this isn't hers because it is in a weird way on some level too, I think. Right, right. I think of Cozy, obviously Cozy is about Beyonce wanting to make an anthem in particular for Black trans women for their right to be comfortable in like political sense, but also just like aesthetically. She's a She finally feels comfortable acknowledging that part of her legacy. So I think it's also her being like, yeah, I'm ready. It just happens to be that she's ready now that the time that she's a billionaire. And the time when like culture at writ large is more generally accepting. Of it. Right. Like it, was, it would have been more radical for her to be singing about her good sis and B-Day than it would be now, <laughs> you know? Exactly. And I'm not asking her to do anything that she's not comfortable with. I do think that we want our artists to stay the same and artists need to change. And the way that she is changing just feels like a referendum on her past. Mm. What's so interesting about this album is that 
it's densely, densely referential when it comes to music history in general, but it's also Beyonce like referencing herself. There are like adult freaky versions of songs that we've known, like Kitty Cat, like Blow. The songs on this album are so much more unruly while being production wise, like the most intricately <laughs> imagined I mean. sort of like towers of sound that you can think of. So I'm interested in the way that Beyonce cannot speak directly. So everything has to be, um, you know, mitigated through her pristine art form exactly whatever yeah (laughs) but it's like there was a shadow in all of her music which was her place in queer culture and to see it being made solid being made physical is a type of vulnerability and it's a type of gosh just like information (laughs) well well, you're making me think of that i think is another intriguing sort of subterranean level of this whole conversation is this is beyonce's first record since four that isn't coming complete with this 360 60 degree visual packaging. Right. And I find that really interesting. I mean, we can talk about the whole rollout and how fascinating it's been that she's pivoted back to some sort of conventional rollout after like changing the nature of pop releases with the self-titled record in 2013 and the surprise release. But even more so than that, I'm very interested in perhaps the vulnerability of just letting these songs stand out there. Because here's one thing that I've always found interesting about Lemonade is I think Lemonade needed the visuals to make its full impact. Lemonade as a set of songs, I love many of them, but I think are way less powerful without the visual accompaniment. When you watch Lemonade and you see the songs interwoven with the poetry, with the immaculately conceived visual representations of what she's talking about, so powerful and got the point across in such an amazing way. Not that the songs didn't, but the visuals really were intricately part of the point of that. So is it a vulnerability of hers in a way to just let these songs hang out there by themselves? Absolutely. And it's a surprising one because at this point, we think of Beyonce as being a video artist. Mm-hmm. I kept like refreshing, like going on her Instagram and stuff. I yeah. was like, where's the video, sister? Like, <laughs> you have trained I mean, that's me. been like the Twitter refrain of the last month. Right. Like, where's the video for Break My Soul? Blah, right. Blah, 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 blah. You've trained yeah. us to expect this. And who knows what goes on in Parkwood? Like, I don't know. But <laughs> I do think that there is something about her opulence, to use a word, obviously, mm. that is very charged in queer spaces that if you're trying to basically invoke a culture that is very much about being outside of society and the margins, I just don't know how well Beyonce's persona is going to like blend with a house track that is invoking the basement, that is invoking sweat. I would love to see it. I do think that there would be some maybe like anger or uproar at her vision of it. But I also think that she seems to be thinking more about songs as experiences and therefore songs as like being meant for space as opposed to the kind of individual watching the video closed off theater experience. I listened to this album three times of my own delition, but even just like being out this weekend, like they were playing and they were playing in a way that I don't normally remember happening after Beyonce releases there's Mm -hmm. something about Beyonce that we don't like to really acknowledge which is that her songs don't really get played as much in public as her (laughs) (laughs) we are acknowledging on this podcast yes reality as I think this campaign um, has been a reaction to that exactly exactly Mm -hmm. and there was just an ease and I think a believability I was at a bar and they were playing Virgo's Groove and I was like this is believable you know Virgo's Groove is a stunner it really is 
And Virgo's Groove is also one of those songs that could have been on her debut album. I kept thinking, especially in the buttery vocals, yes. I get dangerously in love yes. constantly on this. Yes, Like exactly. some of those groovier, kind of the middle of the album, dangerously in love tracks. Yeah. Like low key, but like lightly strange R&B dalliances. Absolutely, because Beyonce is like a rapper these days. So mm-hmm. sometimes the staccato aggression, I mean, I love the way that her voice is developing. It maybe supplants in our mind how she initially debuted as a right. solo singer. And maybe it was just because she was the invocation of Virgo, which is very much like her early aesthetic palette. I was so excited by that. I think that's the most surprising song on the album because it feels like her going back to the roots that in a lot of ways she has distanced herself from. Yes, I agree. And I also think it's a good representation of why I feel excited about the fact that there are no visuals because yeah. this record, I think you used the word earlier, it is cinematic in and of itself in a way that I don't even think the songs on Lemonade are. Like it is so, as we've used this word a million times, but it's really the best one, dense in terms of how it confronts you with a wave of thickness, different samples, songs with three different parts in them. It doesn't need a visual accoutrement to get its point across. And I was so excited actually at the, I mean, at first I was disappointed and I want to see Beyonce dance as much as everybody else does. Mm -hmm. But like, as this record has unfurled for me, I'm like so happy that I just have time to sit with these as songs and that I'm not burdened with some sort of hour and a half equally if not more dense and potentially complicated as you were getting at earlier visual representation of these things because it doesn't need it and I think to your point too about where you were hearing the songs this weekend Lemonade was to contemplate you know that was what it was meant to do this is meant to be heard in a club so like The idea that you would be chained to your couch in order to receive these songs, at least initially, feels like kind of antithetical to their thesis. Absolutely. And I think Beyonce, through no fault of her own, exactly has become homework. Great homework. Homework. I love doing this homework. You know, okay, musicology (laughs) 101, I guess, you know, that's what it's like. And so it is obviously, as we said, you are doing a lot of intellectual work and you're listening to it. But she's also like pushing against let's explain Beyonce reaction that people have towards her that they don't necessarily have towards other artists. And I don't mean to make this like very tired comparison. We don't think of Rihanna as somebody that we need to like study, right? But we've gotten (laughs) to this point with Beyonce where partially because she has developed this superhero persona, I don't know how much she is like enjoyed as pure music Mm. um, in post a feminist era. And like the kind of like disembodied embodiment that's really Mm. central to the experience of the album is like really exciting to me i can see her but i also can't see her she had seemed to have exhausted all ways of being mysterious i think what is so interesting about house culture in particular was that you had to be there the whole point was like if you weren't at the spot at this night Mm. first of all you're not with it because you should have been there and if you weren't then you just don't know And so her trying to evoke that kind of like slipperiness while being the synonym of cultural omnipresence, Mm. she's like Obama, basically. That's like genuinely cool. (laughs) Right. It's genuinely cool. And I think that that loops back to another thing that we were talking about earlier, but like bears repeating is... I don't think she's ever sounded this youthful, edgy, and cool genuinely before. Like, I love what you posited earlier about sort of the 2010s being like some sort of adolescence. And you know what it reminds me? 
reminds me of a little bit is the journey that many pop fans take, which is that you're born, you're young, you like pop music, then you get into your teens and you realize like, oh, it's not cool to like dance music, it's not cool to like pop music. You've yeah. got to be into like more thoughtful music, more ponderous music. And you can sort of like frame Lemonade as like coming through that phase of adolescence. And then a lot of people thankfully get into their 20s and whatever and realize like, no, it's actually cool for me to just enjoy frivolity, enjoy dance music, enjoy a great hook. And I feel like maybe this record represents that phase in her adolescence she never got to experience in real life as a teen star or something. I love that idea. I yeah. love that. That's the thing with dance. Dance is the soundtrack to a crumbling world. Mm. And I feel such darkness in this album as much as I cannot not bop to these songs when they start playing. It is so obviously like made against a backdrop of indecision and worry and caution. Beyonce talking about drugs, like Beyonce comparing herself to cocaine. (laughs) She's always been someone who has been working through her anxiety about making clear her political beliefs. And this is like much more mature to me because it's not about Beyonce necessarily coming out as an ally per se. It's more like she's a participant. And that means that she is doing things or interested in things that would make her dangerous. Pure Honey is an example to me, even just like in its progression, which is to say it's not even a progression. It's like Beyonce as Impressionist, Mm. which is not something that we tend to get for her lyrically. Like her lyrics as you have said earlier in our recording, are so mannered. They denote more than they connote. And Pure Honey is a lot more about (laughs) stoking a mood and also ventriloquizing in an interesting way through like other figures, you know? It's pure. Bad bitches to the left. Money bitches to the right. You can be both. Meet in the middle, dance all night. Take it all off, or just a little, if you like. It's pure. It should cost a billion to look this good. Oh, yeah. The thing about this album is like Beyonce is the dominant voice that we hear, but there are all these other voices that in the production kind of sound like ghosts. You know, like hearing Miss Honey on that track for me, there's like something like slightly spectral to that. It's not just celebrating these undersung or marginalized, if you want to put it that way, dance and house artists. It's about kind of bringing them to the fore. There is like something Southern Gothic about it. Absolutely, oh my God. And just so people are clear, what Doreen is referencing here is the sample of Moi Renee, the late great Jamaican drag queen song, Miss Honey, that happens in the middle of Beyonce's Pure Honey on Renaissance. And also queer history, especially of this period, is littered with ghosts. I mean, we lost an entire generation of queer people during this period, during the 80s and 90s. And then also, of course, you're making me think about the fact that disco music, right? Like real disco music is tinged with a lot of darkness and sadness. And, you know, it's one of the things that I felt like was missing from future nostalgia that is... Mm. So if pop cultural's current disco revival is personified by future nostalgia, to me, the thing that future nostalgia misses is the sleaze the darkness, the underbelly. It's all the surface era parts of disco. And it's not to say I don't love that album, love many songs on it, but it misses that for me. And that makes it not really a disco album to me in the way that Jesse Ware's recent record did capture that more effectively in Mm -hmm. a way. Mm -hmm. And so 
I'm intrigued by that, what you're saying, because we think about these eras of dance music as pivots towards like pop becoming frivolous. But in reality, they were really laden with a lot of, as you said, ghost, darkness, underbelly, sleaze. And I think that's something that Beyonce really effectively works into these songs in ways that you're pointing out. I love that you're saying that because I think a lot of the framing of this record is going to be, look at Beyonce like making a dance record. And like, I'm guilty of this too. I have a review that's going to be published in literally (laughs) half an hour in which I literally- Well, you had to write it so quickly. So don't be harder on yourself. (laughs) (laughs) But I completely agree with you. Like this would not work if those elements were not in the mix yeah. too. Otherwise it would feel False. empty and vapid. Right. And it doesn't feel that way. Yeah, it doesn't. Speaking of ghosts and disco era, Donna Summer's ghost is up in that bitch. I mean- Hello. I hadn't put this to words like you just did, but I almost think it's spooky listening to her sing I Feel Love. You know what I, I mean? I think like so it's too. almost spooky. She's singing as Beyonce, but she's also singing as Donna Summer. And yeah. then also it always puts me in the mind, you know, like the meme of how Kelly Rowland just looks so much like Donna Summer. Yes. I mean, she's got to play her at some point. Right. Yeah. And how Beyonce and Kelly can sometimes like sing like each other. Yes. Yeah. It's like kind of like weird, like body inhabitation. Yes. <laughs> And also, not to mention, Donna Summer had a pretty complicated relationship to the queer community as well. I mean, a gay icon who like said some pretty questionable things. So you're so right about that. I love thinking of them as like kind of disembodied voices from the beyond or something like that, like worked into the mix here. The meticulousness and the attention to detail, as I mentioned earlier, and I think as you were setting up at the beginning of the conversation, it's like both the thrill of the Beyonce project and perhaps the window into the rawness we may never actually fully have access to. You know what I mean? Like her ability to render all of this stuff is so thrilling and yet creates a wall. The way that I express my feeling for this album is that I can't wait to hear underground artists cover the songs Mm. because there is something where, and there's nothing she can do about this. And like, God bless her for making such a distinctive voice, but her voice is overpowering. The recognizability, Mm -hmm. it just sends your mind on a journey that this like incredible, like music on the production level can sometimes just like not stop. The biggest compliment that I can give to this album is like, I can't wait to hear younger queer artists like do their take on them. And I think Mm. Beyonce's music has never been permeable in that way and these songs like feel really permeable like you can just like imagine someone doing like a Scorpio's groove or something like that and also like some good remixes yes exactly you know what I'm saying yeah with other artists I was I kept thinking that the whole time like you could have an entire renaissance like remix project fully other artists adding other people to these songs yeah Yeah, for sure and it's seductive very seductive so in thinking about this as a whole thing as the first confined solo statement that we We've gotten from Beyonce in this decade, in her 40s, in the post-Trump, post-COVID era. This is her first album in a very long time. And I think sort of is the beginning of a new phase. I think we're both feeling that way. I don't want to speak for you, but this does feel like a pivot away from the 2010s ponderous auteur. I mean, it's still an auteur statement, but sort of ponderous, deeply meaningful search for meaning (laughs) Beyonce project. Mm -hmm. What would you like this to pertain for the future of Beyonce's music? Fascinating question. So the thing about Renaissance is that she seems to be teasing that it's a trilogy. Yes. And I understand that the fourth wall is never going to be broken. No. But 
in acknowledging it's healing for us to accept this. right let's accept it but in acknowledging the fourth wall yes. and i think there's an acknowledgement that is embedded in not only the concept of renaissance but also in the like songs themselves that Mm-hmm. It's perking up my ear a little bit. And the like Beyonce exhaustion that I had felt before is dissipating. I'm interested in Beyonce being honest about what she's not willing to be honest about. Yes, right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. And so I guess this next decade, to me, the question is maximalism. I don't think that that really serves her anymore. I don't think that mm. those big statements like homecoming or whatever, you just can't keep going up this ladder. No, it's, right. it's a ladder She reached the mountaintop. She yeah. did. So you, now yeah. that you've scaled the mountaintop, are you even interested in climbing anymore? You know, like, is Beyonce going to give us like a true rock album or something like that? Yes. Like, I, right. I hope to see a kind of experimentation that is authentic to her. I know that she's never going to be the person that I want her to be. <laughs> I know that she's <laughs> never going to give me access. And so how can we make it exciting in ways that just sort of break apart her myth. I think the myth has been built and we can't continue building it. So how is she going to contradict herself? How is she going to make herself open to, I think, a livelier criticism and maybe even like a livelier audience? I think her fans have become militarized by her. Well, all, Kevin, all stands become militarized. Yes, I mean, right. Yes. And, it's not just and, her. And you know, you know, it's funny that you say, I agree with you. I think the fact that she has nothing left to prove could be, if she chooses, an incredibly liberating yes. fact. Because there really is nothing else that Beyonce needs to achieve, as you said, as the maximalist pop star to end them all. Right. She's widely considered the greatest of all time as a performer. She's become the critic's darling. She is all of those things. She's tier one, as we say on this podcast, to the umpteenth mm-hmm. degree. But yes, and I think that that would be the most interesting path forward for her is like to continue to watch her hit the fuck it button as much as she possibly can in her choices and in her presentation in a way that, as you said, perhaps busts the myth because the myth is strong as hell. It's been built very sturdily. We've only gotten very fleeting glimpses into the underbelly of the myth in the elevator, in the firing of LaToya and Latavia, (laughs) whatever it was. Like there's a few moments where that is cracked. But yes, I agree with you on that front. I think that that's really what would be the only challenge that would really like stand ahead of hers. Can you really let the mess be out there in both your artistic choices and your presentation of your artistry. Right. Can you inherit what it is to be a diva, which is not only to be a perfectionist and like extremely ambitious in your art, but to be that unruly, uncontrollable, unpredictable Mm. cultural figure. I think this record points us perhaps in that direction. Yeah. Like I'm starting to think like, damn, maybe in like 20 years, Beyonce will be smoking cigarettes, like doing TV interviews or something. (laughs) She seems chiller yeah. than she ever has before. That's yeah. like the thing that I really walk away from this record feeling like. It does sound like she wasn't approximating fun, but mm-hmm. actually enjoying herself fully in making this record to the extent that she can in the context of like how meticulous she is right. just inherently. Right. And like, that's the thrill of this for me. That's why I absolutely loving this album is because I'm getting to hear... Beyonce unfettered in a way that I haven't heard her before. That doesn't necessarily mean access, but it does mean exactly it is enjoyable to take the ride with her through this music. Yeah, it's just interesting. I hadn't felt interested in her in a very long time. I honestly felt like her discovery of her political um, self really constrained (laughs) 
her Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. aesthetically and sometimes musically. And like now she is veering away from Beyonce the politician. Yes. And we're getting back to Beyonce the artist. I love it. So my last question for you is, is there a song here that stands out to you? Maybe one that we haven't like dissected well here yet that just like is a moment on this record that really speaks to you that we could send the podcast out on. I appreciate the tradition of I'm That Girl. Mm -hmm. When I first heard Break My Soul, I was like, what is this album going to do? You know? (laughs) I love it when pop stars like remake the same song for every album. (laughs) Yes, I I know too. And she's done that quite a bit in various forms. Exactly. So it's like her Bad Bitch album reincarnate like for the seventh time. Mm Mm-hmm. I loved that little. It felt like a okay. piece of candy. So let's do that. I love that. I like I'm That Girl too. Okay, so let's go out and I'm That Girl. Doreen San Felix, thank you so much. Thank for you so show. much, Louie. I had a wonderful time. Yes, me too. It's not the time. All right, so that's a wrap on our four-part Beyonce series. Holy shit, I need a fucking nap, and I need to go to the House of Darion Rehab ASAP. I hope you guys have enjoyed this ride. It really has been a pleasure getting to have these conversations and bring these episodes to you guys. I hope it's been invaluable in this period of renaissance for the queen herself, Beyonce. And I hope that we are going to continue to have this conversation in the Discord that has been popping off. So jump in that Discord. Follow us on social media at PopPantheonPod, me at DJLOUAEXIV. I want to say thank you so much to the wonderful Doreen San Felix for being such an incredible guest. I want to say thank you to Brittany Spanos, to Juliet Escobedo Shepard, to Dr. Daphne Brooks for helping bring this entire thing to life. I want to say thank you so much to the incredible Russ Martin for his support as always this would not have been possible without his hard work dedication and passion please rate review and subscribe to pop pantheon wherever you get your podcasts come out and see me dj at gorgeous gorgeous and play pretty much every song on this record in various forms i'm sure august 12th at resident in downtown los angeles ticket links in the show notes and on social media and until we meet again next week have a wonderful life bye bye I'll be pulling up in a 92 to build Cadillac with them yeah. boys losing my mind. Beep, 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 stand. I'm American. Yeah. I don't need no friends. Yeah. I've been thug-